0: welcome back to Cognitive Revolution. I'm Cody Calmers, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. Before we get into today's episode, I just want to make a quick plug for my new show, Notes from the Field. It's a show about travel. This week's episode is actually one of my favorites. It is called The Mountain Kingdom of Lesotho. Uh, I won't actually say what I talk about in that because if you've ever listened to your friends, or even worse, someone you don't really know very well, talk about their travel experiences, just sort of, hey, I did I did, did this, went there, saw that. It's just about the most boring thing you could imagine hearing. Um, but uh, I promise the episode is not that, and uh, if you haven't listened to Notes from the Field yet, uh, I recommend listening to this one, because if you like this one, uh, you'll probably like going back and listening to the rest as well. So. Uh, I'd appreciate that if you uh, give it a listen, and um, uh, we've still got a few weeks left in season one, so now's a great time to get started. Anyway, my guest for today is Richard Schwader, and so I guess he came on my radar quite a while ago because, um, if you've ever read any of the work of Jonathan Haidt, Turns out that Jonathan Haidt's twin obsessions in terms of intellectual figures are Emil Durkheim and Richard Swader. And Emile Durkheim died quite a while before John Haidt came on the scene, but uh, John Haidt studied with Richard Swader. And so uh, thankfully we still have Rick still with us. And uh, so his, his official title is Harold H. Swift, Distinguished Service Professor at the Department of Comparative Human Development at the University of Chicago. And um, he's had quite an interesting career with a lot of different stuff going on that we'll talk about. He's seen quite an interdisciplinary path. And I guess the sort of crux of that is that he developed what you might think of as cultural psychology. Maybe his most uh, famous work is Thinking Through Cultures, Expeditions in Cultural Psychology. And cultural psychology is an interesting endeavor because basically a lot of the issues with psychology traditionally are that psychologists have focused on uh, sort of this very narrow band of humans, which is, you know, mainly white university educated undergraduates, especially ones who are taking their psychology programs and uh, using those as as the sort of main participants in their study. And uh, Rick was trained as an anthropologist as well as a psychologist. And so he sort of was one of the first people to really take seriously the, the intersection there. And I think uh, his work speaks for itself and there's been a lot of uh, cool cool projects that he's done. I think, uh, I, I also, I didn't really know this until I was, I was studying for this interview, but a lot of his recent work has been, and this is something we get into quite a bit in the conversation, been on sort of the nature of, of creating a pluralist society, you might be able to think of it as. Whereas we have this problem where we know that there's lots of different ways to create a legitimate value system. It's not like there's one, uh, only, one and only one answer to, to, to right and wrong. But there are things that we know are better for people overall. And uh, there are some things that, that clearly should not be allowed to happen in society. And a lot of Rick's thinking recently has been about how do we sort of hold both of those in the same, in the same breath and create a society that acknowledges both of those aspects of, of how we want to do things. So at any rate, we get into a lot of the different parts of his story, especially his time as a graduate student at the Department of Social Relations in Harvard, I've been sort of exploring a number of figures who've, who've gone through those in, in in the last couple of weeks and a couple of weeks to come, and um, uh, it was really interesting to hear from Rick. So at any rate, uh, I really enjoyed this, and I hope you will as well. This is Rick Schwader. So the first thing that I'm curious to know a little bit about, just uh, by virtue of background,
1: is where did you grow up? Um I grew up first in the Bronx in New York City. Um there's an area of the Bronx called Kingsbridge. I lived there till I was 9 years old. Um having gone back there many decades later just to look at what it see what it looked like since I had memories of it and wondered whether my memories are accurate. It actually was a neighborhood which felt very much like other neighborhoods, academic neighborhoods I've lived in, including Hyde Park. But it was near a number of academic institutions um, like Bronx Science and Hunter College and uh, a number of high schools and elementary schools. I st- so at age nine, my parents moved to Long Island, to the North Shore of Long Island, Great Neck in particular. And from nine through high school, I was in Great Neck. Um, For the first nine grades, first eight grades, there was a unified school system. Then they divided up the school system into a Great Neck North and a Great Neck South. And I went from nine through 12 in Great Neck South. Um, But in any case, that's where I grew up. Um, It turns out. Sort of like a law of small numbers, I suppose, that eight members of the University of Chicago faculty, including two provosts, came out of that same community, hmm. between about graduating between about I'd say 1955 through 1965. Um, some of them very distinguished legal scholars, some of them historians, some of them mathematicians. Um, one of the world's great Sanskrit experts, someone who's a sociologist. Um, And four of them, this is where I suppose the law of small numbers comes in for some reason that I think is interesting to try and explain. Maybe it's just coincidence, but four of those eight actually do work in India or on India. Um, And uh, I do recall a ninth grade social studies curriculum which was all about India. Um, including the caste system and whether or not that had an influence on, you know, particular individuals who went on to study and do, I don't know. But anyway, the grade next school system during those years uh, had a lot of people who went on to do scholarly work and uh, that ended up at the university of Chicago and I'm one of them. Um, so that's where I grew up. Then um, I went to the university of Pittsburgh um, If we're being biographical, uh, my real passion in high school was athletics. And um, I actually went to the University of Pittsburgh having been contacted by their wrestling coach. And they had a very high power wrestling team and some with Olympic aspirations. But as soon as I got to Pittsburgh, um, I realized that it was not going to be possible to be an athlete and an intellectual. Uh, At the same time, they're given the kind of involvement that athletes had um, with each other. And um, it was a separate subculture. And I was at that point interested in um, the life of the mind. I fortunately, during orientation period, volunteered to be in a dormitory where they were going to set aside a floor, uh, which was going to be a great books floor for the students who elected to be there Um, and that was the creation of a very intellectual environment so regularly we were involved in discussions analyses debates with each other about great texts Um, that was that was an important influence at the time and at pittsburgh at that point in their history they were still a fully private university and had aspirations this is just coincidental i arrived at a time when they had aspirations to become a great university and they had a good deal of money for professorships, distinguished professorships, and recruited some very distinguished anthropologists. Um, four former presidents of the American Anthropological Association end up coming to Pittsburgh in a short amount of time, and they recruited a number of younger faculty. Um, and I think I was fortunate in that regard, And um, Arthur Tuden, who was uh, one of the younger faculty, um, taught the first anthropology course, the Introduction to Anthropology course, and he was an inspiration. I think um, had he was a Marxist, he was an Africanist. Um, he had a very integrated view of how to think about uh, the social system. He was a very inspiring teacher. He also was someone who was happy to go out after evening lectures, you know, to get coffee or go to a restaurant or bar with a couple of students who were interested, and I was one of them. Um, and I suppose, in a way, he made anthropology um, seem like a place where you could both be an adventurer and do every aspect of the social sciences under the rubric of anthropology, whether it was economics or political science or psychology. Um, and and that was made it attractive, and he made it attractive. Um, there were other members of that faculty. Harold Gould, who was an in, who studied India and was one of my teachers, who was the one who introduced me to India. Um, and then there was um, George Peter Murdoch, who, um, in that generation, was a very he was a former president of the association. He was someone who really created the human relations area files and a certain style of comparative surge in. Uh, anthropology and he allowed me to take his first his seminar for first-year graduate students when I was an undergraduate senior. Um, I was the only undergraduate in the seminar. Um, For the first-year graduate students I think it was fairly intimidating because he was clearly evaluating and judging the incoming class, this very senior person. He's chained smoke throughout and told stories about He He, he socialized you into the lore and the legends of the discipline, um, which was another very important input because I came to know anthropology as a tribe uh, and as a family uh, through his go- the gossip and the stories that he was prepared to tell. Uh, and then every two weeks, the students uh, were given a list of famous figures starting with Herodotus and ending with George Peter Murdoch. So it was sort of the history of anthropology from Herodotus to Murdoch. Um, And you gave an intellectual biography of one of those figures from that list every two weeks. So you did a lot of reading on that particular person's corpus and then presented it. And Murdoch um, told incredible stories amid the people he knew, including about himself. And here's my memory of the story he told about himself. He grew up in New England, came from a high-born background, went to Harvard, was a top tennis player. I think he even may have competed in what was then called Forest Hills, the U.S. Open at some level. He went to Harvard Law School, dropped out after one year, and decided to take a cruise around the world, something that was the kind of thing people from his background did. So he spent a year on a boat going around the world, came back to New York at the end of it, and when he arrived in New York, he heard about this person called Franz Boas, and this thing called anthropology at columbia university columbia university being the first phd program in anthropology in the united states probably i don't know maybe around 1902 or something some early 20th century so he made an appointment to see the famous Franz boaz and murdoch recounts the interview he had with murdoch he said "Mur, i'm mean, sorry with boaz Boas." interviewed me for 15 minutes, and then he said to me, Mr. Murdoch, you are a dilettante. Get out of my office. I never want to see you again. And Murdoch, this is Murdoch about himself, and Murdoch at that point said he got on a train going north and got off in New Haven, Connecticut, and then the rest of his life he was in Yale University. He was sort of shocked into intellectual seriousness by Franz Boas. And he went on and told lots of stories like that, like going himself to an anthropology meeting in what, the 1920s? And he said in the morning, Boaz would get up, there'd be 50 people there. In the morning, Boaz would get up and talk about cultural anthropology. In the afternoon of the first day, Boaz would get up and talk about linguistics. The next morning, Boaz would get up and talk about biological anthropology. And that afternoon, he'd talk about archaeology. And everyone would go home. That was the story of anthropology in the early days. And he'd tell stories about Margaret Mead and her many husbands. He'd tell stories about the famous Edward Sapir, who he viewed as the only genius anthropology ever had, who went to be psychoanalyzed when he was at the University of Chicago and was devastated because the famous Franz Alexander of of the um, Chicago Psychoanalytic Institute refused to take him on as a patient or a client. Because, as he told Sapir, your resistance will be too brilliant for me to overcome. Um, And stories like that. And lots and lots of lore um, of anthropology, which helped socialize students and certainly brought me into a sense of anthropology and its history and and its tribal nature, I suppose. Um, In any case, that was Pittsburgh. Then I should say, by the way, that... um, If you're thinking about influences, I'd go back earlier than just college. Um, You know, at Academy Award presentations, you sometimes see the recipient getting up and thanking their fifth grade piano teacher or something of the sort for their success. Well, I recall... What I think of as the first serious thought I ever had, which came from a seventh grade science teacher whose name was Donald Barry. And in that seventh grade class, he had the students stand 10 feet from a wall. And then he said, go halfway there. And we walked to five feet. And he said, go halfway there again. And he repeated it again and again. And at some point, it dawned on us that we f- kept, if we kept following this procedure of going halfway to the wall, we were never going to get there. And it was just going to be smaller and smaller intervals. And it suggested or inv- evoked, at least for me, a sense of infinity, that this was going to go on forever, that there was no end to it. And that was pretty mind-blowing at least for me as a seventh grade in, in seventh grade um, 25 years later at my 20th high school reunion um, we had invited some of our teachers back and mr barry had become a high school teacher audiovisual teacher and he was one of a few teachers who were at was at the 20th reunion of high school and i walked up to him and said mr barry you won't know who i am i'm rick schwader but you gave me the first serious thought I ever had in life. And, of course, he was blown away by hearing that from this person who at that point was a, you know, on the faculty at the University of Chicago. Um, And then we had a 50th year reunion, 30 years after that, which I went to. The only two high school reunions I've ever gone to, the 20th and the 50th. And there were two teachers there at that point, rather than 10 who were probably there at the 20th. And there was Mr. Barry on the other side of a room. And I walked up to him and said, Mr. Barry, you won't remember me. I'm Rick Schwader. And he said, Rick Schwader, you know how many times I've told that story in the last 30 years? Um, and it's just an example of the intergenerational nature of the life of the mind and the, and the, and the world of the mind. Um, I've had that experience too, you know, in which people who took my cultural psychology course in 1985, I run into at some meeting and have not seen them since and did not really know what happened to them later in life. And they're a mid-career person in some field of the social sciences or philosophy. And they remember that course. It had an impact on them. At that same meeting, I might run into some teacher I had in anthropology years earlier who I haven't seen. And there is that sense of continuity. Uh, You don't know when you inspire someone in a classroom, as Mr. Barry didn't know he had inspired me. But it meant something to him. And there were other high school teachers. There was Gil DeLora, my geometry teacher, who really drew me into deductive thinking and thinking about geometry. There was the person who uttered the word anthropology for the first time in my life, who was an 11th grade English teacher named Billy Beal. And Billy Beale, one day in class, he himself was working on a PhD when I was in high school. He seemed so old at that time. But of course, when I look back, he was probably 26 years old as a teacher. Um, and um, one day, and he was finishing his his, his, his PhD in He was ABD at Northwestern, and he used to visit the University of Chicago. He even talked about the University of Chicago to this class of Great Neck High School students. Um, And he said, well, many of you may not know what you want to do in life, but there's this thing called anthropology I think you ought to look into. I remember him introducing that word to my vocabulary at that point. Uh, And then of course, when Arthur Tudin taught that anthropology course, it was connected in some way to that experience in that 11th grade English class. Um, This was someone who, by the way, organized his English high school English class around a Monday presentation from his 1984 file, because we all read George Orwell's 1984. This would have been 1961. And every Monday, he would read from the newspapers items about what was happening in the world, which were bringing you closer and closer to 1984. So, you know, he, he, he had this narrative which had a big impact on the students. Or at least it had a big impact on me. Anyway, that was the University of Chicago, a quick tour of high school. Um, from there, Murdoch in particular. Um, encouraged me to go to the anthropology meetings as a high, as a senior in, in college in 1965. They were in Denver. Uh, I flew there, of course, knowing nobody. I arrived at the Denver Hilton or wherever it was held and walked into the bar and there was Murdoch sitting there, beckoned me over, and he was sitting with another distinguished anthropologist named George, um, A. Kimball Romney, who was... Uh, a cognitive anthropologist and a methodologist. And they were welcoming and immediately, Romney was going, had just been visiting at Harvard and was now, had been recruited to Harvard. So there was a discussion of Harvard and social relations in particular as a place to go. Murdoch also uh, encouraged me to look into the University of Chicago and the University of Michigan anthropology departments. I applied to all three. Uh, I was admitted to all three. Um, as I recall, the famous Marshall Sollins, who later came to the University of Chicago, was running the search at Michigan. I remember him calling me up to have a conversation about it. But Murdoch was really committed in a way to John Whiting, who was a student of his at Yale, and um, who was at Harvard and i ended up going to harvard and ended up in social relations um whiting became my advisor at social relations in those days um for anyone listening to this after world war ii uh, what clifford gertz described as refugees from other departments um decided to create an interdisciplinary department and some of the leading figures in doing that were Talcott Parsons, the sociologist, um, Henry Murray, the psychologist, Sam, Sam Stoffer, I believe, the sociologist, um, Clyde Cluckholm, the anthropologist, and a few others. And they created this interdisciplinary department called the Department of Social Relations, which had wings. So when you entered it, you either entered the anthropology wing or the sociology wing. Um, there was a developmental psychology component. There was a social psychology component. Um, there was a personality psychology group. And you had students then in all those disciplines who went through this department together. And so you made friendships, and you took a very interdisciplinary courses. Um, I mean, I remember taking a course that was taught by Talcott Parsons and Tom Cottle. That was one semester of it. Another was taught by who? Um, Maybe David McClelland, the personality psychologist. Um, In any case, you were in an interdisciplinary atmosphere um, and you had peers who were quite remarkable. I think you probably learned more from your peers than you did from the courses you were taking. But within the anthropology wing, it was an era when there was a fair amount of government support for large research projects. So at least when I arrived at Harvard, it was as though here was Evan Vogt with a project in Chiapas, Mexico. Here was Cora Dubois with a project in Orissa, India. Here was Douglas Oliver with a project um, in the Solomon Islands, I suppose. Um, Here was John Whiting with a project in Kenya. And there were various possibilities for getting involved in field work. Um, Evan Vogt taught the introductory course for the anthropology wing students, which was about a half a dozen students. In that class was Michelle Rizaldo, Shelly Rizaldo, who was a famous anthropologist who died very early in a horrible accident in the Philippines um, while she was a junior faculty member at Stanford. But she was in my class. She also, amazingly, was in my high school class in Great Neck. So Shelly Rizaldo and I both came out of the same year in Great Neck South High School. Uh, and we ended up as graduate students together first year in the Department of Social Relations in the anthropology wing. In any case, Evan Vogt um, invited me to, after the first year of graduate school to spend the summer in Chiapas in San Cristobal de Las Casas on this research project he had. And that was really the first empirical research I did, which ended up being a kind of experimental piece of research with Zinna these are Mayan Indian shamans, whose cognitive skills I was interested in documenting, and I was in particular interested in how they dealt with ambiguous or inchoate stimuli to see whether they differed from a matched sample of people who were not shamans, but were similar uh, demographic characteristics, in whether or not they would impose an interpretation on things that were inherently ambiguous. And I had a series of photographs that went from complete blur through vividly visible to see at what point in a series going from blur to visible, shamans would say they knew what was there and would tell you stories about it. Um, and so Cognitive Aspects of Zindicatego Shamans was my first publication. And it came out of that summer fieldwork. Um, But I actually became increasingly interested in India while I was there. Um, I mean, I had studied India when I was an undergraduate, but I really wanted the challenge of going to a society that had a couple of characteristics. One was they inverted what at that time I thought of as the primary value system of my own cultural tradition. Uh, and in that, at that time, I was thinking about equality and hierarchy. And uh, Indy, of course, had the caste system. And I was interested to see how a principle of inequality would operate compared to a principle of equality, which is so important in the discourse in the United States. Uh, and I also was looking for a place in which people were comfortable and had the language They were sophisticated in the sense that they had thought about themselves a great deal. You know, a place where they had written grammars about their own language. They didn't just speak the language. They thought about language and they wrote grammars about it or they had philosophies about almost anything you could think about. And in fact, as I discovered in India, the people I work with are often far better at interpreting what's going on than the anthropologist would be and put forward competitive theories about what's happening which you can then interview about and engage and test and so forth. So India had those characteristics. I, so I originally was interested in India because I wanted to study the caste system and its underlying ideology. Um, and Cora Dubois had a project in the city of Bhubaneshwar in which she was studying modernization because there was a medieval temple town that had existed in the middle of a jungle track. And then they decided to build the state capital right next door to it, and cleared out the jungle track and built this modern capital. And she had a number of students over some years who had gone to study one aspect or, or other of, of modernization, um, the development of a bureaucratic administrative structure, the had the education system evolved, um, what happens to religion under those circumstances. And um, she invited me to spend the next summer, uh, uh, in 19, this, would, this would have been 1968, uh, in, in Bhubaneshwar, um, dabbling around basically and really studying um, religious movements ab- among the lower castes in, in the Temple Town area. Uh, and that hooked me. I got, she introduced me to a number of people. I lived with someone who had been administ- uh, under the British, had been gone as far as you could go as, a, as, a, as an Indian in the British administrative service. It was then called the Indian Administrative Service. His name was Neelamani Sinapati. Uh, my wife and I went. We lived with him for that summer, and I went off and explored things and participated in various religious rituals. Um, and made contacts with a lot of people across the spectrum in that area of India. Um, And then I decided I was going to go back and do my PhD thesis research there, which I did um, a year later, a little over a year later. Um, And although I originally had proposed to do a big study of caste, and I certainly did a lot of work on CAST, I was already transitioning into my interest in um, concepts of the self, and how people um, thought about um, how they described others, did they construct the other person in terms of personality traits like we so often do in the United States, or do they have a different kind of code and way of describing and classifying other persons? Um, that ultimately led to the paper called Does the Concept of the Person Vary Cross-Culturally? Um, in which I argued that um, there was a very cases and context way of thinking about others. You didn't say she's friendly. You'd say she brings cakes to my children on Thursday afternoons. Um, and there was a high sensitivity to role and status rather than to an abstract individual with fixed generalized personality trait characteristics. Um, And in a way that links to later work also done there because I've returned there a number of times over the years, I went back and, you know, for uh, field research on moral reasoning in 1982, 83, um, which led to the formulation of the big three of morality And when you think of that formulation, I can see how that earlier work on self connects to it as well, because if you live in a world where there's an ethics of autonomy that dominates, it leans, it it tends towards seeing individuals abstracted out of community and having these characteristics. Um, Whereas an ethics of community Primes you to think of others in terms of status role interdependency duties that come with the position you're in and so forth. Anyway, that's a long-winded answer to your original question about where did I grow up? Um,
0: It's a comprehensive answer. There's no doubt about that. Um, That's great. Okay, so let's let's go back and maybe dig into a little bit of your time in, in grad school at the Department of Social Relations. So it sounds like things went pretty well in undergraduate in terms of getting socialized in anthropology, learning about the field. And then you went to this epicenter of interdisciplinarity and this department where a lot of what we think of as the social and behavioral sciences now were being formed. Uh, Like you were talking about sociologists, anthropologists, social psychologists under one roof, uh, the refugees of different disciplines. Uh, So I guess, was there a moment when you got there that made you stand back and think, whoa, there's something really exciting happening here. I'm a part of a very unique place.
1: Well, uh, first of all, let me say, by the way, that you know I should point out that social relations no longer exists, that in 1973, it sunk. It sunk largely because, and this is my memory of it, there probably are other versions in the minds of different actors, but it sunk because of institutional reasons having to do with the fact that the sociology part of it was coincidental with sociology at Harvard. Um, Unlike anthropology and psychology, anthropology continued to have an anthropology department while there also was an anthropology wing within the Department of, of Social Relations. They had the Peabody Museum. They had archaeologists and biological anthropologists, and you had an option if you were a cultural anthropologist. Interestingly, they call it social anthropology, not cultural anthropology at Harvard in social relations. Um, but if you were a cultural anthropologist or a social anthropologist interested in going to Harvard, you had a choice of either getting your PhD in the Department of Anthropology located in the Peabody Museum or to get it in the Department of Social Relations, which was then located in William James Hall. Um, If you were a psychologist, there was a psychology department. And the experimental psychologists, um, B.F. Skinner, for example, would be in the Department of Psychology, not in the Department of Social Relations. Even Jerome Bruner at that time, as I recall, was in the Department of Psychology. I couldn't be wrong about that, but my recollection is he was in psychology, not in social relations, even though a lot of social relations students took courses with him, as I did. And he, of course, he was an influence for sure. Um, Sociology, however, had no independent sociology department. All sociology was in social relations. And I believe they were, some of them were not happy with that. They felt like there was a, they were being deprived of resources that the other two disciplines had. And a couple of influential sociologists, Alex Inklus, as I remember being one of them, um, pushed for there to be a separation and to create a sociology department and pull out of um, social relations. And some of the psychologists, or at least, I, as I recall again, there was an external review committee which sort of said, well, you have psychologists all over the place. Some are in social relations, some are in the Department of Psychology. You'd be much better off being unified. And so there was a push to separate out. Um, and, and they succeeded at doing that. I still have a button somewhere that says Sockrell lives because the students didn't like it. Um, and that was 1972 by 73, I left in 72 by the end of 73, it was all over. Um, so they didn't sustain it. And I would wager that if you looked in 10 years after the partitioning took place, every one of those programs was weaker than it had been when they were all together in, um, social relations, although that's a speculation on my part, um, You knew you were in a special place every time you went to lunch in those days. Because in William James Hall, there was a lunchroom on the second floor. And often, students would go there for lunch. And you'd get online, as did this very distinguished interdisciplinary faculty. And you'd end up at some table, almost randomly, with some great figure in the social sciences. And lunch conversations, of course, would be around the work they were doing or they questioning you about the work you were doing. So it had a really electric intellectual environment, which was partly structural. Namely, there was this lunchroom on the second floor and the building was 15 floors high. And they actually had managed to partition the place almost by subfields. So you'd be living, you know, fourth floor was a lot of anthropologists and Harrison White, the sociologists. Um, You know, you had to go to the 15th floor to find David McClelland and some of the personality theorists. Uh, You had to go to the 11th floor to find the Center for Cognitive Studies, which was George Miller and Jerome Bruner. Um, By the way, as I utter that name of it, it was the Center for Cognitive Studies, not Cognitive Science. And um, I I don't think that, I think that is revealing, because I do think people like Jerome Bruner were interested in people like clifford gertz or the humanistic side of studying the life of the mind he was certainly interested in gombrich and people who were in aesthetics and for philo- and nelson goodman and people who were in philosophy so calling it the S- center for cognitive studies rather than cognitive science may have communicated something about its breadth and interdisciplinarity but in any case um I should also mention that I was interdisciplinary before I got there. Um, when I was at the University of Pittsburgh, I was doing a lot of work in psychology as well as in anthropology. And you know, my minor, when you declared a minor, was psychology. My major was anthropology. Um, and I was impressed by my peers, enormously impressed by my peers. Um, you know, I mentioned Shelley Rizaldo. Howard Gardner was a peer. Um, he was in the same class I was in. Robert Hahn, who went on to work at the CDC, um, there there are a lot. Tom Weisner, who is became he is a psychological anthropologist at UCLA, now emeritus. Um, you know, there might have been fifty between all of the subfields and wings. I don't know, forty or fifty students were there, um, and they were they were quite a remarkable group. So you were. You were learning methodologies that cut across disciplines. Um, It was challenging. The final exam, I'm now recalling the final exam in the course that was required for everybody. It was a one-year course, two semesters required for everyone. This was the one I mentioned was taught by Talcott Parsons and Tom Cobble. The final, there was one of the questions on the final exam read something like this. Um, Talcott Parsons, among other things, was famous for a book called The Structure of Social Action, which was a detailed account of a number of figures he thought were the formative figures of modern sociology. Using Max the word
0: detailed account to describe anything that Tal- Talcott Parsons did is the understatement of the century.
1: Well, it was, it was let's put it this way, it was an in-depth account. I, and, and not only that, the structure of social action doesn't read um, the way in which the general theory of action book and much of his other writing reads. And I should also mention that one of the startling things when you had a course with Talcott Parsons is how clear and almost overly simplistic he was in lecturing. It was quite the opposite of the abstract, obtuse, convoluted um, writing that you would read, but not in the structure of social action. Wait, that's that's
0: interesting to me because I've I've tried to read multiple Talcott Parsons tomes, and I, I haven't been able to. I'm just i i try but i can't really tell what's happening because it's so theoretical it's so abstract it's so ungrounded and i don't quite know what he's talking about but when so he's- he,
1: when he's doing intellectual biography it's somewhat different than that and i totally agree with what you're saying and it was startling because i had had the same experience before taking hearing him lecture and then i thought this is like an elementary high school lecture what, what you know what what's happened here um but, in any case, his final exam question had on it the following Talcott parsons how should I, let me try and get it um, Talcott parsons has only has only done secondary secondary work based on the writings of others and has never had an original thought of his own comment <laughs> <laughs> so well, that was ta- that was Parsons' question
0: uh, on his own final exam, students,
1: right, right? On yeah. the final, something oh, no, like no. that, some yeah.
0: variation on that kind of spirit. Um, did you did you, uh, did you like assent to that? Did you or did you provide? No, a I, I that, it, it, you ha- you know
1: pick one of the following two questions. <laughs> that was one of them. I didn't. I chose not to answer it. I chose rather to explain dualism in Durkheim's work, which was the other question. Um, and Durkheim was an important figure for me at that point, and I was I was actually interested in Durkheim's essay on the dualism of human nature, which is a uh, brilliant, praisy summary of the elementary forms of the religious life, um, and is still I think is an important, very important essay. Um, I would recommend it to anyone. Dur- Emil Durkheim. Um, the Dualism of Human Nature, I believe is the the title, something like that.
0: Um, and by the way, I'm pretty sure you were the one who turned Jonathan Haidt onto Durkheim, uh, which he talks about incessantly in pretty much all of his uh, works is sort of the god-like figure hovering over all of his, uh, you know, the work that he's done on morality and that sort right. of stuff.
1: Well, so. I'm more of a critic of Durkheim's these days than I was back then. but um, And in fact, when I graduated from Harvard, I had decided I was going to spend time reading the collective works of some great figure in the history of social sciences. Um, And I was torn at that time between doing it with Durkheim's corpus or doing it with what I ultimately decided to do, the collective works of Sigmund Freud. Um, and so, in my apartment in Hyde Park, you will find the collected works of Sigmund Freud. Um, not that I haven't read a lot of Durkheim, but I know at that point I was moving more towards the psychological side of things, and I was interested in understanding freud as best i could just for
0: reference approximately how large is the collected works of sigmund freud like how many pages are we talking 20 something volumes okay yeah each i've not read them i've not
1: to this date i have not read them all i confess yeah
0: it's a multiple lifetime uh long project
1: Um, um so um You know, there was a lot happening at, you know, I mentioned the other two places I had applied to, Chicago and Michigan. Um, Interestingly, during that time, I was taking my introduction to anthropology with Arthur Tudin, who had a Marxist slant on many things. Um, The first book I really seriously read and studied in anthropology Um, was Leslie White, the science of culture, who was at Michigan when he wrote at that time, or had been at Michigan, um, and was a kind of materialist explaining vast aspects of society in terms of underlying energy and forms of production. And so that was, you know, one of the reasons actually for thinking about Michigan and Chicago at that time was in its heyday in, cre- in, in developing symbolic anthropology and interpretive anthropology. I mean, they had an incredible faculty that they had recruited, including Clifford Gertz um, and many others. And I was aware that that was happening at Chicago. I certainly became very much aware of it when I was at Harvard. <clears throat> that was sort of an alternative exciting thing happening in, the, in, in anthropology. Um, Gertz himself had come out of Harvard. Um, Did you, While I was in, I'm sorry, I was only going to say, while I was in graduate school, uh, Victor Turner, who was another very significant figure in that movement, um, was invited to Harvard and they were seriously wanting to recruit him and he ended up going to Chicago, not to Harvard. Um, so, <clears throat> You know, there was a sense of a very unified thing happening in Chicago with regard to anthropology. Whether it was unified or not is another issue. I mean, when you look closely, of course, the remarkable figures who were there at Chicago differed from each other in all sorts of significant way. Um, But you know, Harvard felt more eclectic with regard to approaches in anthropology at the time. Um, David Mayberry Lewis, who worked. Um, in South America, was studying kinship and had his own approach. Cora Dubois was very different from, um, uh, let's say, John Whiting. Um, Well, maybe not, maybe less so from John Whiting, because she also was doing psychological anthropology. But um, I wouldn't say there was something like a school of thought that was at Harvard. There was a kind of interest in field work. And there was an interest in um, there was more of a positivist uh, inclination, I would say, in in the Harvard department. I mean, being interested in, um, let's take the Whiting school. I mean, John Whiting was, in my view, one of anthropology's great positivists. And he was very skeptical of, the symbolic anthropology approach at that time, or privileging ideology over, um, let's say, the influence of an environment on social behavior. Um, And he also was committed to operationalizing, quote unquote, any research you were doing, saying how you would measure something, developing a specific hypothesis, testing it rigorously with evidence collected in a way he felt was both reliable and valid. And so I think you probably learned more about methodology when you were in the Harvard department than in most departments, including the Chicago department in those days. Anthropology departments rarely had methodology courses mm. in, in, in that era. And um, participant observation was valued, but was underdeveloped as a methodology. Um, you know you went off somewhere and you you immersed yourself and you came back and told a story about it um and sometimes they were very big stories, but they weren't necessarily accompanied by what psychologists would consider rigorous evidence collected systematically you know with samples with reliability checks, and so forth um not that psychologists are actually interested in samples either. Sociologists, however, are. And if you were in social relations, you you know, you know learned about the methodologies of the different fields. Um, no, I mean, one of the reasons that criticisms of psychology grow up, in part, has to do with the lack of attention to samples. And so when all of a sudden you can write about weird findings uh, based on studies of Western educated, industrialized, rich, democratic societies, college students, you're not really thinking about sampling. Um, and if you peel behind that a little bit, part of it may just have to do with some deep assumption that people are the same wherever you go. Um, and why do you have to sample if you get a group and show something that you think is fundamental? It's, the assumption is it's gonna be fundamental which is not
0: an um, assumption that's shared by anthropology as as a rule.
1: Um, no, start. although, um, you know, in anthropology is a very fractured discipline these days. Um, I think that in the 1950s, I don't know how far this would go. But it would it reach into the 1960s, what I'm about to say? But I, I certainly think in the 1950s, if you asked... Anthropo- a sample of anthropologists, a representative sample of anthropologists, who are the great greatest anthropologists of the day, who are the leading anthropologists, you'd have a fair amount of agreement or convergence on it. Or, you know, what do anthropologists study? You'd have a fair amount of consensus. And I think that's broken up entirely now. I don't think there would be agreement on who a great anthropologist is. Um, at least not in the United States. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, it's, and and you know the. I've tried to describe the various factions in anthropology. I do think that anthrop some anthropologists continue to be neo positivists and believe the field is about. I mean, this is. I'm now going to describe at least one kind of conception of positivism. It basically means you think of the world as a scene in which there is orderliness to some degree and regularities of various kinds. And your goal as a scientist or an observer is to document them. Basically, reliably and validly document the patterns that are out there, the is of reality, um, and not comment on them. I mean not make judgments about them not moralize about them not say that's good or that's bad not say that's evil or that's noble not say that's oppressive um or that's exploitation it, it, the positivist as a positivist sees their role as documenting the scene okay? and then they'll you know their view is the rest doesn't come out of my expertise the rest is just assertions of opinion or can't be objectively grounded, or at least my observations can be objectively grounded. Um, And that stream certainly continues to exist in anthropology, although less so in cultural anthropology, where even the concept of culture has, of course, been abandoned by many anthropologists. Um, And then you have people who, basically see anthropology as a moral discipline. Um, And their goal is as much to be social justice warriors as it is to document and purely document the scene. Um, You have traditions that came out of skeptical postmodernism, which are basically interested in deconstructing the concept of culture, um, or even the idea that you can typify a group, um, which might just be seen as questionable stereotyping, um, rather than as creating a Weberian ideal type. Um, And there are various ways in which that process of deconstruction has gone forward. Um, You also have a tradition, uh, which I associate and have called um, romantic pluralism. romantic in the sense that it's connected in some ways to the romantic rebellion against the Enlightenment. Uh, Johann Herder, the German philosopher, might be one iconic figure who really did believe that there were groups that had traditions that they were attached to, languages they spoke, ways of life which in which they felt at home. And um, the goal was to... Um, characterize and represent those traditions such that someone from a different tradition could come to understand how a reasonable and morally sensitive person might actually feel attached to that way of life or feel that way of life was meaningful and justified. And I do, there still are anthropologists who do that. And I think proceeding their anthropology, with that with translation of that type as as one of their central goals anyway um yeah yeah go ahead no i say i mean harvard was exciting but one was not unaware of other places where exciting things were going on um and as i said um the excitement you know, ultimately came from both your peers and from being in a shop. When I say shop, I mean working closely with some member of the faculty and the people who surrounded them, other students, other colleagues. So for example, John Whiting and Jerry Kagan, Jerome Kagan, the developmental psychologist, were very close to each other and often um, came together for colloquia or for discussions with students. Um, and there were lots of occasions like that. I mean, I can remember Dick Hernstein, Richard Herenstein of the, you know who ultimately became famous or infamous for his book on, on, on the bell curve and his um, interpretation of IQ testing and what it meant, both for social class and for ethnic groups, debating Jerome Kagan. You know, and the room was packed. You know, and there were there was there still were conversations like that, even on hot topics um, or hot button topics like that that went on. Um, that, of course, you know, you know the downside of it. You know, as I say that, I I'm trying to think about how many occasions where there were the faculty actually argued with each other, and at Harvard at that time. Um, and I had the experience of organizing a colloquia one year. For the most part, um, you had outside visitors or you had students who were giving presentations. And um, while the faculty met in their own shops with their students, there was less, more pub- there was less public exposure of the positions of, of the um, faculty to each other. I actually remember that year I was organizing things getting together three members of the faculty who I wanted to debate with each other over their concept and approach to the study of kinship. Um, And the three of them were Harris and White, the sociologist, David Mayberry Lewis, and if I remember correctly, A. Kimball Romney. They all studied kinship. Um, Harris and White did it through network theory. A. Kimball Romney through confidential analysis. Um, um, David Mayberry Lewis was more in a British social anthropology tradition of kinship studies. I had taken courses or knew about the work of all three of them. I knew they disagreed about a number of things. I brought them together, they agreed to do it, and then they totally avoided encountering each other or debating each other. They just sort of discussed what they did. And that's at Harvard. You know, the downside of Harvard was everyone believes they're great if they're on the faculty. It's like a fiefdom system. And they work very nicely within their fiefdoms, but there's much less exposure to criticism from others. Um, Whereas, in my experience, as On the faculty of the University of Chicago, where I've now been for what forty-seven years, I suppose, Um, people are in each other's hair more. Um, There's more, at least in some parts of the university, um, when when there are interdisciplinary fora and um, there are arguments that go on. I mean, I I participated for a while over in the medical school in their center for. The clinical ethics. And at least for some of the years I was doing that, you would have Richard Epstein, libertarian legal scholar. Leon Cass, who um, was a much more, um, I don't want to type him, but he certainly was not a libertarian legal scholar. He was uh, medically trained, um, quite articulate, um, uh, I don't. I don't even want to use the word conservative, but I will. Well, I'll put him in that category for the moment. Um, but he was, you know, um, he was someone who taught the classics and um, um, w- would be a critic of Epstein. Uh, I was there. There were um, various members of the medical school staff who had very different views. You'd bring together deontologists and utilitarians. Um, You'd bring together um, positivists and realists. I mean, there were people with very different approaches who would argue with each other over very important issues. And that spirit was there in other settings. There was the Divinity School um, had a practical reason colloquium that went on for a long time with philosophers like Alan Gworth, who knew the history of philosophy as well as anyone and could tell you the basic structure of every possible approach in philosophy, who was always asking critical questions. Um, So So, the spirit of contestation was a University of Chicago kind of spirit um, that I think was less true, at least when I was in graduate school at Harvard in social relations.
0: That's very interesting, actually. Um, quick, Quick question. You know, I'm a big fan of Clifford Gertz. You mentioned him at University of Chicago. Did you know him personally? did you Did you have a personal relationship with him?
1: I ultimately did. Um, I mean, Cliff Gertz was a very private person. Um, and I think most people are surprised to learn that he was you know somewhat more withdrawn um, and even a bit shy. Um, but it went along with a whole set of characteristics that made him a lot of fun to be with. Um, because if he let you in, he was very witty. He, he loved both high culture and low culture. Um, he could speak the way he wrote. Or wrote the way he speaks. I mean, there was, you know, he would just come out with these incredible comments and these finely wrought um, sentences with embedded clauses and literary allusions and witticisms. So it was a lot of fun to be with him. Um, I met him the first time because I was visiting the University of Chicago while a graduate student at Harvard, Um, in part because I had a sister-in-law and brother-in-law who were there in the community. Brother-in-law was at that time in medical school at Chicago. And so I was going to Chicago. And I thought, what a nice time to meet some of the anthropologists who were there. And I had written an essay um, and basically sent it to Clifford Gertz and called him on, at home on the phone and said, I'm a graduate student at Harvard. And I'm coming to Hyde Park. Would it be possible to meet with you? I'd you know, like to send you an essay. And he agreed. Okay. And so I met him in his office. What could this be? This would be, you know, late 60s, late 1960s. And, um, you know, he, he, we had a conversation. He did have those characteristics I just described. Um, and then some years later, now we're talking about the early 1980s, um, Bob Levine and I organized um, a conference, which became the culture theory book. Um, we were both serving, Bob and I were both serving on uh, a social science research council committee um, that was, had a lot of psychologists on it, but we were the two anthropologists and we convinced them to use some of the funds the committee had to have this culture theory conference, which was aimed at um, seeing whether or not Clifford Gertz's approach to culture might be of relevance to work in psychology. And I called up Clifford Gertz, again, out of the blue, he was at the Institute for Advanced Study at that point, and asked him whether he'd participate. And, of course, to my pleasure and total surprise, he said, I can hardly believe it. This has never happened to me before. I'm sitting here reading your trilogy of essays in ethos right this moment when you call. And he agreed to um and I had I had published a trilogy of essays called Rethinking Culture and Personality Theory and he agreed to participate and that was the beginning of getting to know him much better and he came out to the University of California San Diego where a bunch of us had kind of a pre-conference planning meeting and participated fully in that along with Mel Spiro and Roy Dondrati and a bunch of other, Robert Levy, and a bunch of other figures who were out at, at uh, San Diego at that time, and then participated in the main conference. Um, so I got to know him better then. I invited him again to be a keynote speaker at a conference that Gil, heard Jim Stigler, and I organized at Chicago, which became the cultural psychology book. And he came for that and gave the the keynote address, and then after he retired, Byron Good and I—Byron Good's a medical anthropologist at Harvard. Um, it actually happened this way: Byron Good and I were at, were in the audience at a session at the American Anthropological Association meetings that was dedicated to the life and work of Jerome Bruner, and. I think both Byron and I had the same thought, which was, here we are at the Anthro meetings, and Jerome Bruner is being honored. There's never been an event honoring Clifford Goertz at the American Anthropological Association meetings. Now, that in part was because Clifford Gertz, perhaps because of being such a private person and operating the way he did, had very few students. Okay. Um, There are a couple at Princeton I think he clearly would view as his students. But um he had very few students. And um who would they be? Sorry. Um Princeton. Jim kids. Boone would be one of them. Larry Rosen would be the other. Those two. Larry Rosen. Um yeah, those two. Larry Rosen and Jim Boone, he he I think he would clearly view as and and um, uh, as his students, and have very positive feelings about both of them. Um, uh, he had one or two students whose committees he was on um, at Chicago, but who not necessarily worked closely with him. Um, but at least those two. And then he was at the Institute where he didn't, where he didn't, for advanced study, where he didn't have students. That may be one explanation for it. In any case, Byron and I were sitting there. And we looked at each other, and we thought, we've got to do this for Clifford Gertz. And we then did it. And um, and that was, we had a meeting in New Orleans. It was a double session. He gave a beautiful commentary on um, the papers that were presented. Um, Jim Peacock's another one, I suppose, who he might I, – I, I'm not sure if John – who who was certainly in that those sessions and might also see Cliff as an influence on him. I don't know if he was a direct student or not. He might've been it's possible. Um, and then we had a dinner. And so I got to know him through all that. And we corresponded a bit after that. That's the degree of my contact with Cliff Edwards. Um, and he and I were temperamentally very different. And, um, you know, he liked blurring things as much as possible, blurred genres. Um, he was, whereas I sort of liked to put things in clear categories and then argue about them. Um, and we went around on how do you think about morality a little bit. But, you know, I can't say I was a close friend of Clifford Gertz's, but um, I certainly knew him. And, um, uh, and I, I felt we had a... An affectionate relationship to each other, certainly by by the time before he died, and I and I ended up, as you may or may not know, being asked to um, write a series of reflections, memoirs about him. One for the National Academy of Sciences. The National Academy of Sciences has an archive of essentially memoirs of members of the National Academy who have died. So whenever someone in the Academy dies, somebody is asked to write a memoir. And they're pretty major projects. Um, So I've done one for him. I did one for Roy Dondrati not so long ago. Um, The journal Common Knowledge had asked me to write something, which I also did, the American Philosophical Society. So I had written in three different um, journals accounts of his life. Um, And in part, um, they ended up being defenses of him uh, in the face of pretty hostile criticism that came from some corners uh, of his approach and his influence on anthropology and the social sciences. Um, Lionel Tiger wrote a memoir in the Wall Street Journal um, which was highly critical of Clifford Gertz, and what he viewed as the damage done to the discipline by Clifford Gertz being the person who ended up helping form the social science school at at the Institute for Advanced Study. Um, So the the discipline was quite torn about it. And um, I tried to explain why he was such an important figure in those memoirs that I did.
0: So, I have a question going back to your sort of canon of work as cultural psychology. And so, you were trained as an anthropologist. Um, you went on to become, you know, this sort of founding figure of, of this field. So, when did it become clear to you that the anthropologist and the psychologist were both sufficiently misguided? Uh, that someone needed to come along and create a sort of separate enterprise to address you know, the important issues that you're interested in. What what did that look like?
1: Yeah, I don't think I ever thought of it quite that way. You know, that uh, judgment that two fields are misguided. Sure. Um, I mean, yes, I've I've written criticisms of both fields um, and some of the directions they've gone in. Um, you know, I've also written. A piece um, trying to explain why anthropologists stopped, or you know, don't show up at cognitive science society meetings, um, which was written um, because Doug Medine and others were co-authoring a piece addressing that question, and it got me to think about it, and the general position I took was that different fields have different aims, you know? Um, So, you know, there are a bunch of heuristics, I think, that have influenced what came to be mainstream psychology in North America, maybe Europe, which privileged the study of universals. And... basically viewed uh, things that varied or were diverse in the world as mere content. Um, And they were less interested in psychology in anything which was time-bound or place-bound or situation-bound, and sort of thought that that was superficial. Whereas the really important stuff that was deep and fundamental um, were things that didn't vary across human beings. Um, and so if your project is to find what is universal, you go in one direction, and it may lead you to treat what's not universal as surface structure rather than deep structure. Um, I, you know, if, uh, Cultural psychology, as I view it, although it's often misunderstood this way, is not about denying universals. In criticizing someone for being interested in finding universals, in fact, in my own, my own approach, I would argue that you know what I do in my study of morality is to study the fate of universals in history, and the transformations, the content, you know, that which is added to them that that makes them manifest in particular kinds of practices. Um, but if you're interested in diversity, you don't have, the diversity I think comes to be seen as significant, not simply superficial. Um, and that's why Clifford Gertz could, you know, in some of his writings express his dismay that someone wouldn't be interested in what, you know, people in Java do, okay? Even if it's not what people in Morocco do or people in Boston do or whatever. Um, So there are different goals. I mean, um, psychological anthropology as a broad discipline is interested in similarities and differences between peoples in their mental functioning by virtue of their membership in particular groups. and the mental means the whole thing, what they know, what they think, what they value, what they feel, what they want. It includes motivation, it includes cognition, it includes feeling and so forth. Um, there are plenty of similarities and there are plenty of universals, but there also are plenty of differences and lots of variation. So, if your goal is understanding the variation, you go in one direction, and it's legitimate to do. And I, as I said, I think you can't do that in a meaningful way without having at least some kind of meta psychology in which you posit certain things as universal. Um, Anna Verzhbitska, the um, anthropological linguist at Australian National University. Um, if you see her name, you won't pronounce it properly because it's W I E R Z B I C K A, but it's Verzbizka. Um, You know, she spent her career interested in translation uh, across cultures and languages, and she's very interested in trying to study differences, but. She proceeds by first trying to identify across 30 languages some subset of concepts that she thinks are universal concepts that are expressed in all languages. I was simply I was simply arguing that Verzbitzka is very you know has spent time trying to argue that certain things you might think are universal, like the concept of an emotion, um, are not, uh, and she does that by trying to look at um, the language of other peoples and analyze it in terms of. Ne- nevertheless, she has to analyze it in terms of a set of un- things she does think are universal. Um, so the, the two are compatible. I mean, there's a, a basic principle which is. Yeah, well, let, well, let me give the let me give the facetious comment on it. The anthropologist Evans-Pritchard apparently said I I re- read this somewhere. The comparative method is the only method that anthropology has. And that's impossible, yeah. um, I suppose, because of incommensurabilities and things that are there in translation. Um, if it's possible to actually accurately represent how others are different from you, it's because you're doing it ultimately in terms of some set of things you believe are shared and universal. I mean, to be me, meaningfully different is to share some higher order likenesses. Um, and You know, that's sort of a basic principle of Aristotelian definition, that there's always the superordinate, and there's always the thing you can point to, the extensive part of the definition. Um, Of course, it's contested, and people who are skeptical postmodernists contest that, but um, they have to contest it in some language that is also comprehensible and requires there be some shared universals to make the discussion of difference go forward or at least that's the kind of argument in the way it would unfold if we actually had it. Um, so I, I think that ultimately, you know, I wrote something comparing Roger Shepard and Clifford Gertz. And um, my conclusion was divided they stand. I mean, their aims were very different and they proceeded in very different ways. Roger Shepard, a very sophisticated cognitive psychologist, was interested in getting at what he viewed as the core fundamental underlying law of classificatory behavior. I mean, if you're shown one stimulus, what will it generalize to? And he believed there was an underlying mathematical structure to it. And he realized that here he argued the only way he could really study it was by having people react to totally novel stimuli on a single occasion. Because he was aware that there could be no such universal principle once you actually looked at actual classifications that people have built up, once you studied the actual properties of the things they were classifying, once you looked at how the human imagination refigures things. I mean, if someone has the category Christmas colors, and they put together blue and green in the same category as Christmas colors, they are violating in the underlying principle of the type that Shepherd was looking for. So, you know, he, he granted all that. Anything that was situational or involved long-term memory or human imagination, was just, variations were all you would find there between peoples, but he was looking for the universal. So he had to set them aside, set them aside, that's not what I'm studying. I'm only gonna study responses to a single stimuli that's totally novel to the person and that they're gonna react to once, okay? Um, So he was totally aware that, you know, people are gonna differ in actual classifications all over the place and across different domains, but he wanted some underlying mathematical truth of classification that any species would bring to classification. Um, and that's became, that kind of work became high prestige in the way psychology got institutionalized. Um, and I think if you go to probably most PhD programs um, in North America and Europe, um, going out and studying the specific mentality of a particular people is probably not valued as much as getting at some underlying thing seen as structure or process, universal process rather than, quote unquote, mere content. Um, language also is not taken as seriously in mainstream psychology departments as it would be in other kinds of places where they're interested in variations. Because there's some kind of notion that there's a lot reflected in language and that language certainly has we argue it has some kind of influence on aspects of thought um, and mentality in general. So, you know, there are many games in town, and um, it, um, the promotion of cultural psychology is not meant to be imperial. Um, it's, it's meant to be interested in um, the intensive study of the ways in which um, time-dependent, place-dependent, situation-dependent beliefs and desires manifest themselves in the routine taken for granted things that people do and say in a particular group. Um, you You know, I've defined culture sometimes as ideas about what's true, good, beautiful, and efficient, made manifest, in practice and it's one of the reasons that i think studying what's customary or routine um, is a, a very important unit of analysis for cultural psychology um in, in a way you s- in, in a way cultural psychology as i view it is the interpretive study of behavior um, so there is a kind of behaviorist component there not in the skinner sense because it's about meaningful behavior and unpacking the meanings that help you understand why someone's doing what they do or saying what they say.
0: Yeah. That's really interesting to get that perspective on things. And you're right. I feel like that there's so much, uh, that psychology tends to look at and be like, this is the gold standard, uh, quantitative, mathematically based universal. And it's very easy for the field to gloss over the, Substantive contributions of uh, more interpretive, maybe qualitative uh, kinds of perspectives that you're talking about. And uh, I definitely think that that's a very valuable perspective to bring here. So, uh, yeah, we've covered a lot of ground here. And uh, I appreciate you being generous with your time. I'm wondering, as we wrap up, is there anything, especially any sort of biographical, um, you know, sort of periods? which uh we didn't cover but you maybe would want to draw a little bit of attention to or do you think we got a pretty good covering of some good stuff
1: well i think we have a limited covering given (laughs) decades of course and lots and lots of things but i think this was a rich conversation um if i were in the context of things said want to fill them out a little bit um You know, there are other very important figures uh, in my own career. Bob Levine, Robert Levine, is the person who recruited me to the University of Chicago um, at a time when Bernice Newgarden, um, who was an uh, an expert on aging and adult development, was the chair of the department. And, you know, the, the University of Chicago When I arrived there, I had a particular conception of what a university is, um, which I've always cherished, valued in many ways, and which I think is under attack these days uh, in the academy. I've written an essay called The End of the Modern Academy um, at the University of Chicago, for example. That's the subtitle. And that's meant to... um, suggests both the end, meaning the goals or aims of the modern academy, but also is written with a kind of foreboding about the end of commitment to some of those ideals. So, for example, when I was hired at the University of Chicago, I was spending that year in Kenya on a field project and teaching at the University of Nairobi. Um, And... I received a letter from Bernice Newgarden. This is like the letter of hire, which basically read, there was nothing about, here's what you have to teach. It was entirely, our only expectation is that you will involve students in your research and have a productive time here. That was, that was the standard. Okay? There was an enormous amount of faculty freedom. Um, you were you um, that of course has slowly changed over time. Edward Levy um, was the president when I arrived. I remember him welcoming new faculty. I ended up as a junior faculty, just hired person, going to a meeting of new faculty, which amazingly included Stanley Tambaya and Marshall Solins, senior faculty in anthropology who had just been hired too at the University of Chicago. And Levy, you know, explained the mission of the university in ways that would be unrecognizable today. Um, I mean, I don't, and he's written about it too. I don't think any president today could get could write or say as, as Levy did write and say that the mission of the university is intellectual, not moral. That um, uh, learning how to engage in critical reason and systematically contribute to the development of knowledge is your central goal. That the university is not here to produce technicians for industry or uh, for the professions. It's not here to be popular with the local community or with the broader public and on and on and on. I mean, he characterized what many of course would probably disparage as an ivory tower Um, but nevertheless, that ideal, um, was very exciting in that era and continues to be for at least some people who cherish the life of the mind, um, and are concerned about how many people have to bite their tongue these days to express their views, um, rather than as the university, one of the University of Chicago's core documents on academic freedom states... It's part of the mission of the university to say and do things that might upset you. That is to question things, to question assumptions, to look at all sides of stories. It's not its goal to be popular. Um, So that general environment at Chicago was influential. I've always been thankful to Bob Levine for actually recruiting me there in the first place. Um, And What else? I mean, you know, there there are other directions we could go in, but I think they would take us um, far afield. The, um, you know, there are a number of things I'm working on right now. Um, I suppose the broadest question is something like, is it possible to be a robust cultural pluralist? And I view myself as a robust cultural pluralist. I think Clifford Gertz was such a person too, and there are many others. Is it possible to be a robust cultural pluralist and a dedicated political liberal at the same time, or not? Or I suppose the variation on it is what varieties of liberalism are actually compatible with robust cultural pluralism? Uh, So the
0: the tension there is that you have pluralism being the recognition that there's Multiple ways of constructing legitimate value systems, and right. then liberalism uh, with the idea being that well, you might have a value system that is, uh, you know, condones harm, or uh, your value system could, uh, you know, maybe n- not be as good as it could be for promoting overall well being or something of like those things. And so how do you manage wanting to accept um, value systems for what they are, but also encouraging them to be? Uh, better in important ways right that's is that a summary of the the basic tension there
1: um, more or less but the less is I would not um, in my big ten view of pluralism is not traditions in which you value harming others um, in fact I think it depends on how you are going to interpret of course what they're doing um, but I would I would guess that the kinds of ordeals that children are put through in some societies um, which are not designed to harm them, but actually designed to help them in their development through tests of courage and through various trials and tribulations, which they are prepared, or you're trying to prepare them to uh, endure, I wouldn't put in the category of harm, but I think that um, there are probably liberal thoughts that expand the notion of child abuse in which the kinds of things that are done in many cultural traditions would be seen as child abuse. Um, ironically, that goes both ways. I know I had colleagues who worked in India for many years, and at one point they were um, they were uh, renting a flat in New Delhi, and they were in a one-room flat, and they had um, a newborn, a young child, an infant child with them. And they had the child sleeping in a crib in the kitchen while they occupied the bedroom, the one bedroom. And their landlord, their Indian landlord, when he found out about this, viewed this as child neglect and child abuse. He was shocked over this. Um, and I think that, you know, there's, you know, I've studied who sleeps by whom in various places, and there will be lots of disapproval from subcultures we're familiar with of sleeping arrangements, for example, in many cultural traditions. Um, there's a moral basis to them when you get into them with any depth, and I've written about that as well. But in any, but in any case, even the idea that um, you would draw distinctions between people on the basis of kinship or on the basis of um, ethnicity or on the basis of nationality, um, all of these would be seen as illiberal I think in many ver- some versions of liberalism and would be seen as problematic they'd be viewed as vicious discrimination um, rather than a liberal notion of um, free affiliation between anyone uh, who who uh, is willing to have it um, so there there are many features um, where where very thick durable ties of um in group end up dominating that would be problematic i think i mean let's put it this way two or three thousand years of investigation of social life i think have revealed that in group out group distinctions are quite widespread and pervasive and so are up down hierarchical distinctions and um if you privilege equality and free affiliation, regardless of in-group, out-group membership, you have a picture of one kind of world. And there are certain versions of liberalism with which that's the ideal. Um, Even having patriotic commitment to an in-group like a nation is seen as problematic, and the push would be towards international global citizenship um, rather than... Um, upholding boundaries, and the role of boundaries and, um, um, you know, it's, it's like Robert Frost's poem on the mending wall, you know, good fences make good neighbors. That is not something that certain versions of liberalism are prepared to accept. Um, and taking down all boundaries is seen as more virtuous than putting up boundaries. So um, a pluralist is going to, I think, not take a universalizing position. It's not going to believe that there's one way of life, which is the single highly developed form that should be what the universal civilization should look like. It's going to try and um, make space for morally grounded alternatives. So I suppose the central principle that I'm trying to get at here is the the principle that the illiberalism of a practice is not a measure of its immorality. There are the, the moral domain is rich enough and thorough enough has lots of different goods in it, has lots of different principles in it. I mean, if you try to articulate the rules of, moral reason, of which I think there are a number of rules of moral reason. I would call them universals of moral reason. But there are lots of them. And they're often in conflict with each other. And there's always the hazard of taking your own cultural tradition and those rules that it has privileged or those goods that it's privileged and thinking those must be universal, overlooking the fact that other traditions have privileged different subsets of those rules of moral reason or those potential goods. um, Producing somewhat different ways of life. And part of the challenge is to overcome, let's call it the ethnocentrism involved in reacting to someone else's world or way of life as though the things happening, there were happening in your world or way of life without going through the process of stepping into their world, looking at the so-called native point of view, seeing whether you can discover within a practice that you thought was outrageous or oppressive or harmful, seeing whether you can see within that practice goods that you recognize as goods that you hadn't recognized earlier upon first blush, or whether or not you can connect that practice to some part of the rules of moral reason. And I think that's often possible. I'm not saying it's always possible, nor am I saying whatever is, is okay. I'm just saying more than one thing is okay. And that includes political organization, kinship organization, the way you raise children, the relationship between the genders, um, what a normal body looks like. Uh, and on and on and on. And that's sort of the challenge for a cultural pluralist to see whether you can take a practice that an outsider reacts to with opprobrium, and see whether by the end of the day you can plausibly and with evidence establish its connection to something that you could imagine someone approving of if they understood it properly, and had committed themselves to those values rather than these values, all of which are indeed values. So back to the principle that the illiberalism of a practice is not a measure of its immorality. Maybe I'll stop with that.
0: Well, that's such a deep and fascinating topic, and I really do hope you will let us all know when you solve the problem. (laughs) <laughs> and uh once 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 the last word is in on that that'll the world will be a much better place um so i think that's that's such an incredible topic to be working on right now and, and i look forward to, to seeing how it continues to develop because i have read some of those papers that you sent me very fascinating also very fascinating the connection uh, like you mentioned uh the shepherd versus uh gertz uh comparison very cool so anyway, uh, Rick, thank you so much for doing this. This was, this was a ton of fun for me and well, Cody, so much interesting I, stuff.
1: I, I enjoy discovering your series here and, um, I enjoyed this discussion and good luck in your graduate work.
0: Thank you so much. Uh, I, and I look forward to, uh, uh I need to dive back into some of your, uh, some of the texts uh, that you, uh, were responsible for, uh, that you mentioned throughout this. Uh, so that's gonna, that's gonna be at the top of my reading list because there's, there's some stuff that I need to, I need to revisit. So I'm looking forward to doing that. And uh, maybe you'll see that show up in my work in a couple of years henceforth. So thanks. For- onward and <laughs> onward and upward. <laughs> see ya. Bye-bye. That was my conversation with Richard Schwader. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, I'd appreciate if you subscribe to Cognitive Revolution on whichever platform you may be listening through. And if you want to connect with me further, probably the best way to do that is through my email newsletter. I send it out on Fridays, it's called Dear Luke, and it basically is a personal intimate letter uh, from me to uh, this colleague named Luke. And it's the most sort of personal writing that I do. I really enjoy it, and if you want to keep up to date with me and my work, then I'd really appreciate it if you subscribe. You can do that on my website, codycommerce.com newsletter. All right. So thank you very much for listening. Uh, and I'll be back here next week with another episode of Cognitive Revolution.